right. Well, good morning once again, church. You guys doing okay? It's a beautiful day. Yes, indeed. Grateful for that. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app or whatever it is that you use to locate the scriptures, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I'll just remind you that we have been working through Peter's first letter. And anybody remember offhand, by chance, the title of this sermon series? I heard standing firm. That's the first part. Anybody else got anything? Standing first in this present age. There we go. Standing firm in this present age. So if there's sort of a, a theme that is helping to guide and shape what it is that we're trying to understand from Peter's writing, it is it's kind of that idea. Standing firm in this present age. Now, of course, he's writing to Christians uh, many, many, many years ago, but that absolutely applies to us as well today. So just kind of keep that sort of in the background of your mind, if you would. Standing from this present age. We know, hopefully, at least up until this point, that um, we've been called out, called out and set apart from the world. Uh, this, by its very nature, the fact that we are called out and set apart, it sort of invites a level of opposition that Peter's been talking about. Um, we are called out of darkness into what? Light. Into light, into his marvelous light. And the fact that we are called out of darkness and to minister to those in the darkness, um, you will find, and some of you can attest to this firsthand, um, People that are in the dark and are comfortable in the dark don't want to be bothered about coming out of the darkness, right? They're happy there. They, 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 in fact, they will go to great lengths to sort of extinguish the light around them because it exposes things in their lives that they don't want exposed, and it's uncomfortable. So basically, this translates then to Christians being treated with contempt. Evil behavior, Peter calls it, a reviling so he's been going through great lengths, I think, to explain to us that, look, this is the reality that we face as we stand up in this present age and we look different than those around us. We are inviting certain things into our path. So this begs the question, if we're not facing those kinds of things, that opposition, that reviling, are we the exception? Or are we somehow exempt from what Peter's been talking about? Well, probably not, but the first thing I would say is not every hour of your life of every day is going to be filled with this kind of treatment. However, if you rarely experience this kind of treatment, um, you might rightly ask yourself, why am I not being challenged more often? Am I blending in too much to the society around me that I don't look like I'm a threat to exposing the darkness to the light. Because the Bible is clear, and Peter's clear. Believers, we will face this kind of persecution and judgment from the world. It's not an if, it is going to happen. That's not really the point of the text here this morning. However, it is kind of the overarching theme of the letter, but I wanted to kind of get that out there before we dive into what we're going to do. So here's what I want us to understand this morning. We are different from the world, 
and our behavior sets us apart in this life and in the life to come. That's going to be my sort of guiding principle today. We are different from the world, and our behavior sets us apart in this life and in the life to come. So this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's going to help us sort of direct our life as we face these challenges and and this sort of malicious behavior of people around us that are fighting against the light. So are you ready to do that? All right, go to 1 Peter chapter 3. You're already there. I lost it. I'm going to find it again. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to take this basically in two chunks. Um, we did verses 1 through 7 last week, so we're picking up in verse 8. This is 1 Peter 3, 8, and I'm going to read us down through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Lord, again, we just pause right now. We, we, we pray for wisdom, Lord. Sometimes we, we lack wisdom uh, as far as how we are to live in this age, to stand firm in this present age, because it's challenging, Lord. There are people that don't want to be around us even um, because we are different. We're set apart. We're, we're called to a different kind of lifestyle. But Lord, you're going to give us in your word this morning, I believe, some, some important steps in how to do that more consistently and more faithfully. Lord, you call us to obedience. You don't call us to perfection. Uh, Lord God, you don't call us to change the hearts of people that's your business. That's your work. You call us to faithfulness and obedience. And we know from this letter, God, that we are going to be called to be faithful and obedience in the face of opposition and challenge. So, Lord, help us to gain from this word this morning tools to be able to do that, again, more faithfully and obediently. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the sermon title is simply different for a reason. We are different for a reason. Now, Peter gives us five things right out the gate that we ought to be uh, shaping us as we kind of go down this path. The first one is unity of mind. Unity of mind. So that's basically with other believers. We should be looking to be unified among the, the flock, among the people, because we don't want to add fuel to the fire that non-Christians might uh, add when they watch how other Christians treat each other. Right? There's no faster way to destroy your witness than for Christians to be just attacking each other. That's not going to do us any favors as we're trying to be light in darkness. So unity of mind, keep that right there. Sympathy, he says, is the second thing. 
caring deeply about the needs of other people, and then working hard to help meet those needs. That's something that we must be doing as well. The third thing, the middle thing that he puts in the, the kind of sandwiches in between all this is brotherly love. Brotherly love. So this is for all people, right? We need to be loving of all people, but specifically here he's talking about how we love other believers. Why? Well, I believe that John 13, 34 and 35, it sums it up perfectly. You can write that down. I'm going to read it right now if you want to flip back there later. John 13, 34 and 35 says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So how we love other believers serves as a calling card to those people around us that we're different. Something about the way that that community acts and loves each other, that, that's different than what I see, and that's attractive to people. And, and Peter says, or, or Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. So this is vital. We've got to do this. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing is a tender heart. How many of you are tender-hearted? Just by nature, you are super tender-hearted. I don't see a lot of hands going up. So this is sort of a partner trait of sympathy. We need to have compassion for all people, not just the people that are easy to love. We need to have compassion for all people. This, what it does, church, is it, is it positions us to demonstrate the love of Christ clearly without any undue obligation like, oh, I have to do this. I'm a Christian, so I have to reach out to that person. I have to do that. That's not the right heart. We've got to have compassion because we have a tender heart for people. Lastly, he says, a humble mind. Thinking of others as more significant than yourself. So when Peter was writing this in the Roman Empire, this idea of humility and thinking of others more highly, that was, that was counter-cultural. In fact, it was looked down upon in the Roman culture that Peter is writing to. But I think it's something that, that is missing from our culture as well, right? Are, are we taught to serve others and express sympathy and, and compassion and think of others in this way? No. We're taught to look out for what? <laughs> look out for number one, right? We're not worried about you. So it's clear that if we make these traits a priority in our lives, church, we will most certainly stand out. But I will say that these traits, I think, in and of themselves, they're not going to draw a lot of attention, a lot of hate and discontent your way necessarily. But, but don't worry, we're going to get there. It's coming. So look, that's just the opening verse. <laughs> that's verse 8. He says in verse 9, If anyone treats us poorly or reviles us, that's not a word that we use very often now, insults you, condemns you, uses poor language towards you, or they extend evil behavior. We don't respond in kind. Actually, Peter says, what you ought to do is what? Bless them. Yeah, somebody treats you like garbage? Yeah, just go ahead and bless them. No problem, right? It's easy to do. Who does that teaching echo? It's Christ, right? Jesus is teaching, right? He said, Somebody slaps you, what do you do? Turn the other cheek. If you, somebody wants your, your coat, what do you do? You give them the coat, you give them the tunic, you give them everything. Right? He says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Those are the words of Jesus. Paul teaches the same thing. Bless those who persecute us. 
So what is this blessing that we're supposed to do? <laughs> Here, here's what it is. Simply, it, it's asking God to show his favor and perhaps his mercy upon these people who seek to do you harm. Pray for them and ask for God's blessing upon them. That's what we're called to do. Now, is that easy to do? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's challenging, especially when people are going out of their way to, to cause harm. But it's clear, church, this is what we do. This is how we live out our faith. And then Peter, thankfully, he gives us the why. Because a lot of times we want to know why. Why am I supposed to do this? He tells us, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. There's a purpose in this. So what is the blessing, Peter? What is it you're talking about? Well, I think the blessing in the context of the letter as a whole is eternal life. That's the blessing that he's talking about. It's the same kind of teaching from James. Remember a ways back, maybe a year ago, we went through James and spent some time on his teaching that faith with, without works is what? It's dead. So this is not, fancy word here, works righteousness. Meaning we're not earning our salvation by treating people kindly. That's not what he's talking about. But if you have been called out, set apart by God, then this kind of behavior is necessary. We're not in a position, my friends, to withhold grace and mercy and blessing when God has not withheld it from us. The New Testament teaches this clearly. In fact, Peter writes about it. You can kind of hold your place there. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5 through 11. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from the former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, those who practice those things, like this is our mission to walk these things out. And as a result, the blessing that comes through the extension of our faithfulness in this is eternal life. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. And in most of your Bibles, verses 10, 11, and 12 should be indented. What, what does that usually mean? What is it? It's a quote from somewhere else in the Bible. So somebody look down at the footnote there and tell me what this quote is from. There should be a little footnote, probably an A or a B or a Z. No, nobody has that? Somebody does. I know they do. Anybody got it? Psalm 34, 12 through 16. That is what Peter quotes here. He's kind of helping his audience to understand this. This teaching is not new, okay? This is going way back, generations and generations. So as we're doing these things, living differently from the world, our eyes, the eyes, I should say, of the Lord are upon us. 
That's the promise in Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are upon you, and his ears are open to our prayer. Now, praise God for that. Thank the Lord that his eyes are upon us and his ears are open to us. Because he doesn't ask us to do these very challenging things on our own, or without his hand constantly upon us. So take heart, my friends, that his eyes are upon you and his ears open to your prayer. And that's exactly what Peter says in verses 13 and 14. Who's going to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? I'm watching. I'm listening. I've got you. Who's going to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He says something here that, that caught my attention, though. Look at verse 13. He says that harm won't come to us, right? But in the very next verse, he says we're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. I'm like, wait a minute, Peter. You said nobody's going to harm us, and then you're going to tell me that I'm going to suffer for righteousness' sake? So this tells me that there's a difference between harm and suffering. So look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop a little knowledge on you here. We are likely to get hurt in our pursuit of righteous living, living by people from all backgrounds. But no harm will come to us as long as we are zealous for what is good and we allow the Lord to lead us and direct our paths. Now, some of you might say that sounds like a semantic sort of thing. <laughs> harm, and you're, you're saying the same thing, but I assure you that's not the case. Harm can come when we lose sight of Jesus and begin to live life for ourselves. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's, it's here in this place where we're living life for ourselves, where the enemy knows how to inflict harm that causes damage to our hearts, our minds, even our relationships. Here's what I want to say about this. Hurt will go away, but harm causes lasting damage. You see the difference? Hurt will go away, but harm causes lasting damage. So have no fear, he says. Don't worry about it. These people may cause suffering, and, and don't be troubled by them. Instead, verse 15, honor the Lord. Honor the Lord in your heart as holy, always being prepared to defend the hope you have with gentleness and respect. So you stand out from the world when you make a defense for the hope you have in Jesus in a common, respectful manner. How many of you have seen your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, making a defense for their faith that just, man, it's it's not pretty. <laughs> it's angry. It's, it's, it's almost hurtful in some ways. It's obnoxious. Not only are you not doing any good for your testimony and your witness for what Christ has done in your life, but you're actually doing greater damage to, to future people that might be able to do what Peter says. Do it humbly and respectfully. So my question for you this morning is, are you right now able to give a defense for the hope that is in you? Can you humbly describe what you believe and why you believe it, even to someone who's hostile against your beliefs? Now, I know that's a tough question, but Peter, again, makes it very clear, my friends, this is an expectation the Lord has of us. You see, we are witnesses in the courtroom of the world who are giving a testimony of what Jesus did. You're a witness. Here's what you're not. You're not a prosecuting attorney, <laughs> right? You are a witness, humbly giving 
an account. You have an important story to tell. So this is how we defend our faith. Not with an arrogant attitude or fancy language, but with a humble answer for the faith, hope, and love that we have in Jesus Christ. So no matter who your audience is, we got to be able to do this, my friends. So what is the content of that defense? Well, I think it's up to you. Why? Because your unique story of God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness is an important part of that defense. I don't want to just pull something you know, off the, off the internet and just recite it for somebody. Your testimony of what Christ has done in your life is an important aspect of the defense, the hope that you have, because it's personally impacted you. It's changed your life forever. So with your story and a strong backing from the Word of God, you can make a defense for your hope to this world. And if we do this, church, we honor the Lord with a clear conscience. And those that revile our behavior in Christ, Peter says, they're going to be put to shame. Don't give them any space to combat what you've said. Like, oh, that's a great story. Christ did all these things, but you're over here, you know, cutting people off and giving them the bird as you're driving down the street. You just cut your legs off. So when you talk about being different from the world, people are going to watch. They're looking. They're actually looking for opportunities to cut your legs off. So don't give them a place to do that. Stand firm. So here's what I'm asking you to do this week, church. Take some time to build your defense or refine it. You see, Sunday mornings, this preaching thing, it's a team effort. Whoever's up here preaching, yeah, they're going through and they're working out and they're, they're giving you, you know, the, the lay of the land, so to speak. But you're not here on a Sunday morning just to listen and go home. If you are, I'm telling you lovingly, you're wrong. You should be actively listening for an opportunity to say, in response to this, I will do this. So I want to kind of enact a, a sort of new way of looking about this from your seat. Every Sunday morning that you hear a message at this church, or any church for that matter, you should walk away with an I will statement. I will do this. In response to what I heard, I'm going to do this. It's not only my job or Mike's job or anybody's job who up here to kind of spoon feed you like, okay, church, here's what you're going to do. Here's the word of God. Now go do it. We'll do that to a certain extent, but you have an obligation to do that as well. I will do this. God's word compels us to action. If it doesn't, you're missing something. We have to leave here equipped. That's the whole reason that we're studying the word of God. We've got to do this, church. Okay, the last section of chapter 3. It's an interesting one. We're going to move quickly through it. Some actually have labeled this one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament to understand fully because there's some, there's some interesting things going on here. But I hope to bring some, some clarifying thoughts. But let's just read 1 Peter 3, 18 to the end of the chapter. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, 
were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right. So, we start out in the section, thankfully, with a very clear outline of the gospel. Christ suffered once, meaning he died for our sins on the cross. Clear. Got it. And then a great exchange took place. Our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness, right? In other words, Jesus took our place, exchanged our sin and imperfection for his sinless perfection. That's what we've got going on so far. Why? So that he might bring us to God. In other words, Jesus made a way into relationship with God the Father that was not possible up to that point. Through his work on the cross to forgive sin, transfer his righteousness to believers, we are now reconciled back to God if we repent and believe. Amen? I mean, that's, that's a pretty clear snapshot of the gospel right there in verse 18. I love that. Being put to death in the flesh. Yes, got it. Makes perfect sense. But made alive in the spirit. So here's where things get a little bit difficult. And I'll spare you the many ways that people interpret this. And people are like, well, wait a minute. Was he dead in the spirit? They had to be made alive in the spirit? Like, what's happening here? Here's the best way to understand the text. Is that Jesus was put to death in his physical body, and then he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Simple? Clear? Got that? No problems. Now we move into some deeper waters. (laughs) We read that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay. What in the world does this mean? Again, there are a host of things that people think that this means. Oh, here's, let me start out with what it doesn't mean. That somehow Jesus went to preach the gospel to all those people who had died who were waiting for the resurrection to happen. Here's why I can say that. The word proclaim that is used here is not the same word used to preach the gospel. There's a very specific word that the New Testament uses. That's not the word here. We're not talking about proclaiming the gospel. Then the word spirits is never used to describe humans. It's only described, used to describe angels, angelic beings. So linguistically, this is not saying Jesus preached the gospel to people who had died. But theologically, we know the Bible doesn't teach that there's a sort of second chance option to repent and believe after a person dies, right? Do you get a second chance after you're dead? No. So theologically, that can't be what he's teaching either. So, where did he go, and who was he speaking to? Well, to be fair, we can't be 100% sure. Even Martin Luther wrote, he couldn't be certain what Peter was talking about. But I think there are some good places that we can begin with this. Spirits in prison. Those are the words that we say. Jesus went to proclaim to the spirits in prison. That terminology is somewhat limited in scope. And most likely, Peter is referring to the evil angels of Genesis chapter 6. Do you remember when we went through Genesis and we saw the angels came down and they were, they were having some relations with human women? 
right? They had abandoned their place in heaven. They'd come down to earth. Well, we know that these evil angels were imprisoned by God, who Jesus now goes to proclaim his victory over them as the crucified and risen Lord. That's what I think is happening here. The prison is where the angels, these fallen angels, are being held captive, and they are those from Genesis chapter 6. So write down, if you would, Jude 6, Jude verse 6, and 2 Peter 2 verse 4. You go back and read those things and tell me if, if you think I'm off in what this is happening. Because there are people who will tell you that, no, 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 Jesus went down and he was preaching the gospel to all those people that had died and he was giving them a chance to come to faith. And I just don't think the Bible teaches that at all. And I think these two verses help solidify that idea. So then Peter draws on this example of Noah. I think for no other reason that he's making his point be heard. Here was a small group of people. How many were there that got saved on, on the ark? Eight. Eight. So very small group of people. Noah in Genesis was called a herald of righteousness. So here he is proclaiming the truth to a world who had completely abandoned God. Do you think he was facing ridicule and reviling and opposition and persecution? Yeah, you better believe he was. He was the only one standing firm in that present age. Massive persecution. But what did Noah do? Continued to honor and obey the Lord with his actions. So he was certainly different from the world, and his behavior set him apart from them. And as a result, Lord, the Lord brought Noah and his family safely through the water. Now, this is symbolic of salvation, but it would have served as an incredible encouragement to Peter's audience. And it should encourage us as well today, knowing that here's Noah preaching the gospel, preaching the good news, preaching righteousness to a world that had completely gone mad. Everything they did was evil all the time. That's how God described that generation. And here's Noah standing firm, just proclaiming what he knew to be the truth. And as a result, God faithfully rescues him from that. So we should take some encouragement from that. Finally, it is the symbolism of baptism in verse 21. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because this is not really the, the text, the crux of the text, I should say. But I, I want to just give you the words of one of my favorite theologians, Warren Wearsby. He says this, The flood pictures death, burial, and resurrection. The waters buried the earth in judgment, but they also lifted Noah and his family up to safety. The early church, that would be Peter's audience, saw in the ark a picture of salvation. Noah and his family were saved by faith because they believed God and entered into the ark of safety. So, sinners are saved by faith when they trust Christ and become one with him. When Peter wrote that Noah and his family were saved by water, he was careful to explain that this illustration does not imply salvation by baptism. You see, baptism is a figure of what of what does save us, and that's the resurrection of Christ, right? Water on the body, the body placed in water, it cannot remove the stains of sin. What is the only thing that can remove the stains of sin? The blood of Jesus Christ. So I think we understand that. This is symbolic here. The passage closes with a reminder of the authority that Jesus has over all things. He says, over the angels, over the authorities, over the powers, they're all subjected to the rule of Christ. So this serves us as a reminder 
that Jesus is in fact victorious over his enemies. And so we can be fully confident that in our suffering, Jesus reigns and he will deliver us through all of it. That's quite a passage, a lot, a lot going on there. But let me remind you of our, our guiding principle that I wanted to keep in mind at the forefront. We're different from the world, right? And our behavior sets us apart in this world and in the life to come. So if we walk in humility, with concern for those around us, if we do not return evil for evil, if we bless those who curse us, if we honor Christ in our hearts as holy, if we stand firm, yet gently give a reason for the hope we have in Jesus, we will stand out in this world. And it may likely bring attention that we don't necessarily want or enjoy, but that's what we're up against, church. That's Peter's reason for writing this letter. So you, us, today, be encouraged that as you act different from the world, knowing that your behavior sets you apart in this life and in the life to come, stand firm. Stand firm. So my prayer is that you, over the last 30 minutes, have a solid, I will do this this week. I will fill in the blank. Could be, I will try to stand more firmly in the world around me that is completely opposite. I will seek to be a herald of righteousness as Noah was. I will seek to firm up or build my defense for the hope that I have in me. I will. What I'd like to do also in the coming weeks and months is, is give space for testimony. As you go out and do these things, God honors your obedience and faithfulness. And if you come up to one of us and go, oh man, I had an I will statement this week that I was going to share the gospel or share my faith with, with my neighbor who's you know a drug addict and he came to Christ. Like, Come tell us those things. We'll, we'll give you a space in here because that's powerful. We want to know that this is not just something we do out of routine or obligation, that this is equipping you to do the work of the ministry that you have been called to. We want to celebrate what God is doing through your faithfulness. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to us, God, that, that you don't leave us to our own devices. You don't, you don't just tell us, you know, good luck. Here, here's what I've called you to, and, and we'll see you on the other side. Lord, you're with us every step of the way. Your word told us today that your eyes are upon the righteousness, that your, your ear is open to our prayer. And so we pray right now, Lord, that you would give us a desire to be faithful to this call in our lives, to be humble, to be faithful, Lord God, to be looking for opportunities to, to minister to people, to, to meet needs, to be compassionate, have humble hearts, and desire to see your name be made great in this world. And Father, we, we know that they may come at a cost. And Lord, you called us to count the cost, Lord. I pray that as we do, we will stand firm regardless, knowing that, yes, we may be hurt, but we will see no harm come to us because you are faithful and the victory is already yours. So God, we praise you. We thank you. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.